Hello there and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Or this may be your first time. Either way, I'm glad that you are here. My name is Craig Hadley and I'm one of the pastors at Paradox Church, which is based in Redlands, California. Our church was founded about five years ago, and one thing that's different about our church than other churches is that sermons like the one you are about to hear are designed to start discussions and not end them. We are currently in a 66-part series through all 66 books of the Bible, and the sub-series within the series is the book of Judges. Today we are looking at a little-known story in Judges chapter 11, and this sermon is entitled, The Judgment of a Certain Woman. The story of Judges 11 begins in Judges 6 through 8, which tells the story of Gideon. Now, Gideon is considered to be a hero of the faith because Gideon's story is that he had tens of thousands of soldiers that he was going to lead into battle against the army of Midian, which was composed of 150,000 soldiers. God, however, looked at the size of Gideon's army and said, mm, it's too big, Gideon. Why don't you whittle those tens of thousands of soldiers down to the very best 300 and lead 300 soldiers into battle against the army of the Midianites? Because Gideon has faith, he downsizes his army, leads 300 men against 150,000 men, and prevails in a mighty and miraculous fashion. Now, one would assume that Christians in America today take this story to heart and adamantly support downsizing the military, but we all know that's not how Christians in America today work. <laughs> Rather, the primary lesson that Christians gather from this story is that in war, there is always a righteous side and there is always a wicked side. And Christians in America often view the American military as always the righteous side. Now, after this stunning defeat against immeasurable odds, we then read in Judges 8, 30 to 31, as Gideon's story is winding down these words. Now, Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring, for he had many wives. His concubine who was in Shechem also bore him a son, and he named his son Abimelech. This man, Abimelech, is the main character of the story in Judges chapter 9. And we need to remember his name because we are going to read the story of one of Gideon's 70 sons named Abimelech. Judges 9.1 reads, Now Abimelech, son of Jerubbabel, which is another name for Gideon, went to Shechem to his mother's kinsfolk and said to them and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Which is better for you, that all 70 of the sons of Gideon rule over you? Or that one of the sons of Gideon rules over you. Remember also that I am your bone and your flesh. So in two quick verses, this story is quickly set up. Abimelech, the son of Gideon, or one of the 70 sons, goes to the leaders of Shechem, which is his mother's family, and says to them, do you really want 70 leaders? Wouldn't it be better if we just had one king to rule over all of Israel? Shouldn't we pick one of Gideon's sons to be the leader and king of Israel? And after proposing this radical new form of government, Abimelech leans in closely and says, Also remember, 
that I am one of you. The leaders of Shechem hear this proposal in verse 3, and they say, oh, we should do this. And they look at Abimelech and they say, he is our brother. And from this moment forward, the people of Shechem back the political agenda of Abimelech. In verse 4, we read that the people of Shechem give 70 pieces of silver to Abimelech to hire mercenaries to go around and enforce his new rule and throne with a military. With this military, he declared war on his own father's house in a town called Ophrah. And there he killed his brothers, the sons of Gideon, 70 men, all on the same stone. Abimelech has no problem murdering all of his brothers in order to consolidate his power. And while he kills all of his brothers, or so he thinks, there is one brother, his youngest brother, the youngest of 70, a man named Jotham, who survives. He escapes and he hides himself in the mountains. After this mass murder, all of the lords of Shechem come together and they crown Abimelech as their king, the first king of Israel. Now, upon crowning him king, Jotham, the younger brother that escaped, sees this and he begins to speak from his mountain hideout. And he tells a parable about political power that I found to be quite profound, even millenniums after this story was told. This parable begins by the trees looking at each other and telling themselves, we should appoint some tree to rule over all of us as king. And the trees begin to speak among themselves about which tree should be their first king. And they decide that the olive tree will be the best tree to do these things. So the trees waddle over to the olive tree and they ask the olive tree to be their king, to be their ruler, to be their political leader. And the olive tree thinks about this proposal and then asks them a question. Shall I stop producing my rich oil by which gods and mortals are honored and go to sway over the trees? And with that question ringing in their tree ears, the olive tree declines their invitation to be king because the olive tree finds that producing olives is too worthwhile to give up to become a leader. The trees then say, well, if the olive tree will not be our leader, who should we get then? They then waddle over to the fig tree and they ask the fig tree to be their king. The fig tree thinks about this proposal for one minute and then says, Shall I stop producing my sweetness and my delicious fruit and go to sway over the other trees? And the fig tree declines their invitation because the fig tree is too busy producing figs. Discouraged, the trees then say, well, who then should be our king? They then turn to the vine in the vineyard and they say, vine, will you be our king? The vine thinks about it for a few moments and then says, Shall I stop producing my wine that cheers gods and mortals and go to sway over other trees? And the vine declines the invitation to be their king. With few options left, the trees then turn to the bramble, prickly, brushy, and with little use to their cause. <laughs> and they turn to the bramble and they say to the bramble, Bramble, will you be our king? And the bramble is shocked and honored. The bramble says to the other trees, if in good faith you are anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. 
And with that, the parable of leadership and power by Jotham comes to a close. The point of this parable is that when you establish political hierarchy, the people that rise to the top as the leaders are the ones who do not produce anything worthwhile with their lives. The other people who are producing worthwhile things are too busy and finding too much fulfillment in those things to stop and give themselves to political maneuvering. Remember, this parable was written somewhere around 3,000 years ago, and it still hits home today, doesn't it? After reading about that parable, we then read in verse 20, Then Jotham, who is the youngest and only surviving son of Gideon other than Abimelech, ran away and fled, going to Beer, where he remained for fear of his brother Abimelech. The story then shifts its focus back to the king of Israel, Abimelech. We read in verse 22 that Abimelech reigned over Israel for three years, but he was not well received by the Israelite people. There is one story of a man who comes to visit Shechem, and his name is Gaal. Now, Gaal is at a party, and he begins to drink wine, and he has a little bit too much to drink. While he is at this party, and Abimelech is nowhere to be seen, Abimelech has friends at this party. And at this party, Gaal, after having a few too many glasses, begins to run his mouth. Gaal says, Who is Abimelech, and who are we of Shechem, that we should serve him? If only this people were under my command then I would remove Abimelech. Now, this is something you should not say when there is a king on the throne. Word gets back to Abimelech that Gaal has said this at a party, and Abimelech does not take these words lightly. A few days later, Abimelech takes his soldiers in the darkness of night and surrounds the city of Shechem. And at dawn's first light begins to attack his own city. Not only that, but these are his own people, his mother's people. But the fact that they are harboring and listening to Gaal means that they are on the verge of heresy. This fighting continues all day and into the next. And on the second day of this skirmish, Abimelech appoints soldiers to stand at the gates of Shechem and slaughter anyone who tries to escape. Not only that, but on the second day, Abimelech also sends two companies out into the fields to slaughter any citizens of Shechem who are working in the harvest. Toward the end of the second day, he captures the entire city. He kills everyone he can find that is inside of Shechem, and then he raises the city and sows it with salt. Now, when you sow a city that you destroy with salt in Abimelech's day, it is a way of cursing the very ground on which your enemy grew up on. This curse was meant to be a curse of infertility that no human being would ever inhabit this space again. On the very next day, a few remaining survivors try their best to escape from the city. They race up a hillside and lock themselves in the Tower of Shechem. Abimelech pursues them with a band of mercenaries. Once he arrives at the tower, he looks around and sees brush all around the tower. He starts to cut it up and orders his soldiers to do the same. 
They cut a bunch of brush and lay it around the foundations of the tower. He then takes some fire and ignites the brush, which lights the tower on fire as well. We read in Judges 9 verse 49, And they set the stronghold on fire over them, so that all the people of the tower of Shechem died, about a thousand men and women. Abimelech is a tyrant. And after leveling the city of Shechem, the city of his mother's family, he realizes that he has an insatiable desire for more. He then turns his attention to the city of Thebes. He attacks Thebes in the same way that he attacked Shechem. And in verse 50, we read that Abimelech takes the city of Thebes. And after the city is lost, there are several survivors who flee to a tower within the city and lock themselves inside the tower. Now, if this story sounds familiar in Thebes, it just occurred in Shechem a few verses ago. Abimelech sees these survivors running to the tower and thinks to himself, I know how to deal with this. And he begins to cut brush around the tower and lay it at the foundation of the tower to light it on fire. And this is where the story takes an unexpected turn. In verse 53, we read the words, but a certain woman threw an upper millstone. Now an upper millstone is about 25 to 35 pounds and about two inches thick. So we read that a certain woman threw an upper millstone from the top of the tower onto Abimelech's head, which crushed his skull. In verse 54, we read, Immediately Abimelech called to the young man who carried his armor and said to him, Draw your sword and kill me, so people will not say about me a woman killed him. So the young man thrust Abimelech through, and Abimelech died. Verse 55 reads, when the Israelites saw that Abimelech was dead, they all went home. Thus God repaid Abimelech for the crime he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the wickedness of the people of Shechem fall back on their heads. And on them came the curse of Jotham, son of Gideon. And that, my friends, is the end of the story in Judges 11. Wow, what a, what a story. I mean, what's wild about this story is that Abimelech is clearly the tyrant, and yet he's the main character of the story. I feel like this should be the certain woman's story, but she doesn't even get her name in the scriptures. Not only that, but when we look at this woman, she is apparently the hero, but what is she heroic for? Murder. So this story creates all sorts of emotions and reactions within us that I think are worth exploring. What do we do with this story of a certain woman with a millstone? To help us answer that question, I want to tell you a story that took place a few months ago that revolves around my niece, June Hadley. Now, June is six years old. And a few months ago, we took our kids spring break to head up to Mammoth Mountain for a week filled with snow skiing. Now, when the week began, all the kids were behaving. They would all ski in a very nice, neat and orderly line, one right after the other. 
and they all complied by the rules that we put in place for their safety. But as the week wore on, the rules started to fade away. June, in particular, loves one thing about skiing, and that is going fast. She doesn't like the turns. She doesn't like the brakes. She's not really a big fan of the jumps, but man, does she love to fly down the mountain. And as the week went on, she went faster and faster down the slopes and was more and more comfortable with steeper and steeper hills. Around Thursday, this started to make my brother, who is June's father, a little nervous. So on one chairlift ride up the mountain on Thursday, he said, Okay, kids, new rule. I'm going to be behind all of you, and Uncle Craig is going to be up front. The rule is you have to stay behind Uncle Craig. So we got off the chairlift with this new rule in place. And I started skiing at a modest pace, encouraging the kids to learn how to turn and to control their speed. June was right on my tail. And with every turn I made, she said to me, Uncle Craig, go faster. This lasted for about half a run before I looked back and I realized how bored June was with the speed that I was setting. All of a sudden, I saw this look in her eyes where she was very clearly calculating a formula of risk versus reward. And at some point she said the risk was worth it. And she turned to her left and went as fast as she could. She blew right by me and went straight down the hill. I immediately yelled that June was breaking the rules. I remember Scott saying to his daughter, Hey, slow down, June. I took off trying to keep up with her and she was flying at a breakneck pace. We finally arrived at the bottom of the hill. She was out of breath. I was out of breath. Her father came to a stop next to her and started talking to her in a very diplomatic tone. June, he said, what did you do? And June looked at him, raised both hands into the air and shouted at the top of her lungs, I broke the law with zero remorse in her voice. Now I have to tell you, I love this story and it was one of my favorite stories that has ever occurred on a ski slope. This story to me is endearing. And my guess is that when you hear this story, if you enjoyed it, it's because you found it to be endearing as well. Now, when we use the word endearing to describe this story, we should ask ourselves the question, what makes this story so endearing? To answer that, there's a couple of questions we can ask. Is this story about abject defiance or is this story about love? So let's go back to that moment on the chairlift when Scott says, okay, kids, new rule. You need to stay behind Uncle Craig. You need to slow down. That's the law. Why did June break that rule? Was it because she wanted to be the one who made all the rules? I don't think so. I think she broke the rule because she wanted to ski fast. This story is endearing to me because June loves to ski fast. So let's return to our story in Judges 11. Because when I think of this woman's action, when she chucked the millstone over the tower wall and killed Abimelech, 
The only word I can use to describe this woman's actions are heroic. Now that's deeply problematic because as we talked about last week, judges is a strong condemnation of violence. In fact, a central thesis of the book is that violence, weapons, and murder will never deliver justice and peace. So this story has an unspoken tension residing in its bones. And the tension is the fact that we want to view this woman as a hero, but we also want to make sure that we don't glorify the violence that she committed. Is it possible to do both of these things? To hold her as a hero without glorifying the violence? I believe it is possible. And to do that, we have to look at this story and ask ourselves, what is it that makes this woman so heroic? Is it because her story is about violence? Or is it because her story is about love? The great Reverend Dr. Will Gaffney once wrote in her book, Womanist Midrash, all sorts of advice that's very practical for how we can study the Bible. One of her pieces of advice is that when we read the Bible, always ask ourselves the question, where are the women and girls in this story? What are they doing and what are their names? So let's look at all of the women who are mentioned in Judges chapter nine in the story of Abimelech. There are five different mentions of women but none of them are named. We read in Judges chapter 9 when Jotham is telling us of his parable and he is condemning Abimelech that he refers to Abimelech's mother as Gideon's slave woman. The second mention of women takes place in verse 49 when we read of the burning of the tower of Shechem where the Bible tells us that about a thousand men and women died. The third mention is about men and women rushing into the tower of the city of Thebes where they feel certain they are about to die. Please note that so far in these first three mentions that in Judges 9, women exist only as collateral damage in this story. Which brings us to the fourth mention of women which takes place in verse 53 when we read, but a certain woman threw an upper millstone on Abimelech's head and crushed his skull. And the last mention of women is when Abimelech is dying and he is begging his servant to kill him because he does not want his legacy to be that a woman killed him. It's almost like Abimelech is saying with his last breath, she broke the law. A woman's place in war is on the sidelines. So when we notice how women are spoken of in this story and how the larger theme of judges is that violence, weapons, and murder will never deliver justice and peace, we realize that there's something else at place here in this story. Namely, if it was a man who was in the Tower of Thebes who threw the millstone on Abimelech's head, we wouldn't view him to be nearly as heroic as this woman who did the same thing. The reason for that is because whenever we talk about the ethics of violence, we must always talk about power dynamics. Power dynamics always influence the ways that we view violence as being ethical or not. 
This is why it is always damaging when white Americans tell black Americans about Martin Luther King Jr.'s writings and words about nonviolence. What they are doing is they are ignoring the power dynamics that informed the ethics of Dr. King's writings. So anytime we talk about the ethics of violence or nonviolence in America today, we always need to talk about power dynamics. And when we consider this story in Judges chapter 9 about a woman with a millstone and a tyrant for a king, we have to acknowledge the power dynamics that are at play. Abimelech believes that he gets to decide who lives and who dies. And this woman's action is a stark protest to that man's power. We have to read the text carefully and pay attention to the power dynamics in this story to talk about the ethics of violence. In other words, the Bible invites us into a more nuanced and deeper conversation than a literal and surface reading of the text. This is what's so important to understand about the Bible. The Bible is at its best when the words lead us into deeper wisdom. We often hold up people to be of great faith when they just do what the Bible says, but I have found that that's not when the Bible is at its best. The Bible is an invitation to deeper wisdom. And the more that we think critically about how we act and what is heroic and when is it okay to use violence and when is it not, the more the Bible begins to shine. So here's this story where Abimelech believes that he gets to decide when women live and when women die. And this woman is living in this context where Abimelech is about to light the tower that she is residing in on fire. And she picks up a millstone, brings it to the wall, and I picture her whispering to herself, I refuse to be this man's collateral damage. And she hurls the stone over the side of the wall. What is it that makes this woman so heroic? Is this story really about violence? No. For me, this story is about love. This certain woman had enough love for herself and for her people to refuse to accept the role that society had given her to merely exist as collateral damage. And what this woman teaches us today is that sometimes the most courageous thing that you or I can do is to have great love for ourselves. My friends, may you see and embrace the image of Christ in all, even in yourself. <laughs>